0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackers. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Astrid Eckert about her new book, West Germany and the Iron Curtain, Environment, Economy, and Culture in the Borderlands. I first had the pleasure of reading Astrid's work with her award-winning Fight for the Files, The Western Allies in Return of Captured German Archives. I am pleased to report, however, that West Germany and the Iron Curtain, available from Oxford University Press as of 2019, is another fascinating contribution to the literature. Reviewers are already hailing it as a, quote, brilliant exploration of the economic and environmental peculiarities of the border zone that is essential reading for all students of post-1945 Europe. I, for one, am inclined to agree. Eckert's new study examines how the Iron Curtain altered the economic, social, and ecological conditions regionally with far-reaching implications for their field. But enough from me. We are fortunate enough to have her here with us today. So without further ado, Astrid. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, hello from Atlanta, and thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Well, it's our pleasure. To begin with, what brought you to the study of history?
1: Um, as a as an undergrad, I was still under the impression that I would uh, become a journalist, <laughs> but uh, uh, but I um, always wanted to dig a bit deeper and uh, always needed a bit more space to express myself. So um, I more and more moved over to the to the academic side, and you know, and eventually. Uh, went to grad school.
0: Why history, though? What was it about the methodology or the subject matter? What about the subject was the attraction for you?
1: Well, I studied in Berlin. I got my degree from Free University Berlin, and um, uh, I guess as any Berlin visitor could tell you, you walk through town and history is all, is all around you. The Germans, of course, have a very a tumultuous uh, 20th century history. And I myself uh, at some point got the feeling that I was living it uh, in 1989 when the wall came down and uh, when uh, Germany really uh, changed profoundly. I was uh, in high school at the time and it just, you know, you really got sucked into it and you wanted to know more about it.
0: Well, as you briefly allude to, the story of how you came to write this book involves some very poignant absurdities. The root of the questions seem close to home well, I suppose more appropriately, it is home to you. How did you come to write this book specifically?
1: Yeah, I I guess we all have our stories, how we come to write the books we ended up writing. And my story probably begins with a photo from 1985. I was in high school at the time, and uh, teenagers from Paris came to visit my school as part of an exchange program. And we were living in a very small town in the state of Lower Saxony, that's in the north of Germany. And frankly, I mean, we were living in the sticks, right? And I suppose we had a bit of an inferiority complex towards our visitors. Uh, What did we have to offer to 15 euros from Paris, right? Well, you know, we took them to the Iron Curtain. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We probably told them that they would get to see the place where East and West collided. We probably told them that this was a place of global significance. And frankly, I cannot remember what we told them. The visit was perfectly undramatic. Uh, There was no world historical dimension to it, but it was just another outing uh, to keep our visitors uh, amused. And I remember this photo uh, from that trip when I started to research on the inter-German border. And uh, growing up, I'd never given much thought uh, to the fact that the country roads ended some half hour to the east. It was the normal state of things. But um, as I was approaching the subject as a historian and some 20 years after unification, it dawned on me that I must have grown up in a Cold War borderland and that my youth was probably more exciting than I'd ever thought. So on a personal level, um, this book is, as you said, to a certain extent, my effort to understand the absurdities with which I grew up and why I didn't find them absurd back then. And I wanted to study this particular border, not just because of my personal connection to it. I also felt that at a time when new borders go up and existing ones are fortified and dormant ones are revived, it may well be the right moment to historicize the Iron Curtain. I find the Iron Curtain such a compelling subject because, well, you know, it has come and gone. It's noteworthy not only for the extent of its brutality, but also for its disappearance. So, so here was a real-life experiment in partition that could unexpectedly uh, be undone. And that really fascinated me.
0: Out of everything that you discovered, what is it that you want the reader to walk away thinking about from this book?
1: Yeah, my book is called West Germany and the Iron Curtain. And the the first thing I always point out is uh, that the book is not about the Berlin Wall, right? I mean, if people have any association with the term Iron Curtain or if they have a mental image of it, um, it's usually the Berlin Wall. Uh, but my, my book is not about the Berlin situation. Um, instead, it engages uh, the history of the long inter-German border Uh, That meandered mostly through rural areas uh, between West and East Germany. So after 1945, this long border uh, used to be uh, the demarcation line between the British and American zones of military occupation on one side and the Soviet zone of occupation on the other. And uh, as the early Cold War uh, set in and the former World War II allies drifted apart, this demarcation line slowly but surely turned into uh, a real border, right? It uh, became strictly policed, increasingly fortified. And in its most mature stage in the 1970s and 80s, the inter-German border was one of the most militarized borders uh, in the world. So so my book um, examines the consequences of this volatile inter-German border for West Germany. This focus uh, probably needs a brief explanation uh, as well. I mean, projects sometimes begin with a very simple observation. Scholarship on post-war Germany and on post-war Europe more generally has for the most part uh, treated the Iron Curtain as belonging to the history of socialist East Germany, the GDR. And uh, even uh, Edith Schaeffer's very fine micro-study of two adjacent border towns ended up finding the more interesting and the more dramatic stories on the eastern side. She's addressing that in her discussion of her sources. And that makes immediate sense. I mean, the inter-German border and the Berlin Wall proved decisive for the lives of most East Germans. These structures uh, were designed to separate competing ideologies and, of course, to undercut out-migration, if necessary, by, by deadly force. As uh, Thomas Lindenberger has argued, the ripple effects of the GDR border regime defined the East German dictatorship. They translated into a multitude of boundaries within East German uh, society. So Lindenberger actually classifies the GDR as a dictatorship of borders. And I, I, I don't question the centrality of the border regime for the history of the GDR, but I wanted to flip the direction and ask what did the inter-German border mean for West Germany? In which ways did it matter on the Western side, apart from the obvious fact that it divided the country? And how could I write about this border uh, without reproducing the already familiar narratives that the Iron Curtain is known for? Right? I don't think anybody uh, needed another book on escapes from the GDR or uh, on the border's military history. And so my book takes a fresh look at the history of the old Federal Republic and the German reunification process from the perspective, from the spatial perspective of the West German borderlands that emerged along this uh, Cold War demarcation line. And the borderlands I'm dealing with um, are the the counties on the western side of the inter-German border. Uh, West German contemporaries uh, referred to these border counties as the Zonenrandgebiet, the Zonal Borderlands. And um, I, I wish I could show you a map on this uh, podcast, but but imagine a 25 mile deep strip of land along the inter-German border on the western side. So that's the extent of these borderlands. And my uh, my central argument is tied to this 25 mile deep strip. Um, the book argues that these border regions were the most sensitive geographic space in West Germany. So um, throughout the lifetime of the old Federal Republic, these areas constituted a laboratory where West Germany had to wrestle in concrete ways with its ideological opponent, the GDR. And in these borderlands, Western authorities had to address the many practical consequences of uh, partition, right? You know, interrupted roads, broken utility networks, lost property, inaccessible schools, that sort of thing. Um, but these practical issues uh, were only uh, the beginning. The nature of the engagement with the socialist neighbor changed over time, uh, reflecting the well known uh, trajectory of the Federal Republic from its anti communist founding and Affluent miracle years through the era of the Cold War uh, detente into a you know rather self-absorbed last decade, the nineteen eighties When I say that the border regions were the most sensitive geographic space in West Germany, then this is of course related to the significance of the border itself. I mean, I probably don't need to explain that the Iron Curtain was, of course, the central icon. Of Cold War Europe, it was a shorthand for the partition of the continent into West and East, into capitalist and socialist economies, NATO, Warsaw Pact, democratic and collective societies, right? So these Cold War binaries were symbolized by the Iron Curtain. And fueled by this uh, symbolic valence and power, the border, I argue, magnified all activities uh, and developments in these borderlands,
0: on that note, you begin by investigating the economic dislocations caused by this demarcation of Germany. How did the sudden appearance of the Iron Curtain change the situation on the ground? And how did locals react to this abrupt reordering of the economy?
1: Two chapters in my book uh, are addressing the economic situation, uh, the economic consequences uh, of the inter-German border. And I find them really um, central to understand uh, how West Germany ever acquired spaces that one may call borderlands at all. I mean, from an American perspective, Germany is perhaps a rather small state. And uh, so the question is, where on earth would they fit uh, borderlands? <laughs> and in the economic chapters, I I argue that uh, the lobbying efforts of representatives from the border counties created these borderlands, constituted these these borderlands, it is uh, through the lobbying efforts that the borderlands become visible as a spatial unit. To flesh this out further, I mean, for the most part, the, the German Iron Curtain created borderlands where none had been before, right? So the regions along the demarcation line were economically very heterogeneous. The, for the most part, this border across uh, the regions that were rural and uh, depended on agriculture, but the border also came close to cities such as Lübeck and Wolfsburg, Göttingen, Kasselhof, and each of them had a specific local uh, economy or specific uh, industries. So for a few years after the Second World War, the demarcation line between the Soviet zone and the Western zones of occupation still remained unfortified. And it it was beyond the capacity or willingness of the Allied authorities to police this line in a consistent or effective manner. But although the demarcation line was still frequently crossed in both directions, uh, East and West already began to diverge before the two German states were officially founded in 1949. So the introduction of a new currency in the Western zone of occupation in June 1948 is, is really central in this context because it created uh, two territories of diverging economic opportunity, right? So that is the moment when this demarcation line really started to behave like like a real border. So before Germany was divided politically, it was already getting divided economically. And um, so uh, in these chapters, I want to use the perch of these budding uh, border regions to get a sense of how West Germany adjusted to its new post-war economic uh, geography, right? So how, how it started to settle into the new territorial realities that were emerging um, after the Second World War. So in the, in the West German context, this means that the established industrial areas on the Rhine and on the Ruhr and in uh, the uh, Germany's southwest, they soon experienced rapid economic recovery, right? Something we conventionally call the economic miracle. But this uh, economic miracle looked very different in the border regions, right? Uh, it actually had detrimental effects in the border counties. So um, as economic recovery uh, gained momentum and on the Rhine and on the Ruhr, uh, it sucked capital, business and labor out of uh, the borderlands. Uh, local companies received relocation bids, skilled workers now migrated west, but unemployment in the border counties remained uh, uh, very high. So um, because economic recovery had these detrimental effects in the border regions, uh, border residents began to feel that they were you know, under friendly fire, so to speak, and they started to refer to the rest of the country as uh, the Golden West, right, as if they themselves were not uh, part of it. So justified or not, in the new economic geography of Western Germany, the regions along the border acquired um, a reputation as economically depressed areas. And justified or not, residents in these border regions perceive themselves as falling behind. And in this situation, a coalition of people from the border counties pressured the Bond government uh, to support their regions and prevent them from falling further behind. And I refer to these people um, as borderland advocates, right? They were local politicians, uh, business owners, chamber of trade people, chamber of commerce people. And uh, these uh, these borderland advocates uh, argued that uh, West German reconstruction efforts must be especially visible along the border in order to, you know, impress uh, East German observers and demonstrate the superiority of the Western political and uh, economic system. Right. So this is the the window dressing argument that we know already from from West Berlin. Um, so they argued that if their regions. Uh, did not get to benefit from the economic miracle, then residents might well become susceptible to communist infiltration. So so they made this argument, but um, hitting up the the federal government in Bonn for regional aid was really um, a futile proposition at first. Uh, West Germany, all of West Germany, was recovering uh, from war, so depressed regions uh, were not exactly in short supply. Uh, In fact, the border counties only joined an already highly audible chorus of, of similar expectations that were directed uh, towards the state. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the border regions had a hard time for sure, but so did a whole string of other areas and, uh, and cities. So, so clearly um, there was a competition for state resources here, and uh, the border advocates realized that they needed to speak uh, with one voice. They needed a more systematic approach and they therefore uh, coordinated their efforts and started to pitch a more consistent message right so so whereas other regions uh, only um, in quotation mark uh, suffered from war damages and run of the mill structural weaknesses the border regions uh, could point to and act- actively enlisted the ideological parameters of the of the cold war right so theirs were problems uh, caused by uh, communist aggression So the early Cold War provided a suitable language and imagery to pitch the border regions as victimized by the communist regime uh, next door. So those who spoke for the borderlands developed a a visual and rhetorical language of of partition that that fixed the demarcation line on the mental maps of their compatriots, even uh, before these German authorities famously escalated the border regime and locked down. The demarcation line in May 1952, and um, so I was analyzing these uh, lobbying efforts, and I came to the conclusion that that borderland advocates really cared less about living in the shadow of the Iron Curtain uh, than than about living in the shadow of the economic miracle. Right, so borderland residents were quite concerned that economic uh, recovery was was passing them by, and these lobbying efforts were eventually rewarded. I mean, state support was uh, slow in coming, but uh, once regional aid measures took shape, these areas uh, came to be known in West Germany as uh, Zonenrandgebiet, which I translate as zonal borderlands. Uh, And uh, borderland advocates themselves had actually come up with this term. It was kind of their brand name. Although their, their, their regions were actually uh, economically very diverse, uh, they realized that they needed uh, a coherent label uh, to turn their regions into one recognizable spatial uh, unit. And uh, correspondingly, the, the aid program they eventually received uh, came to be called as uh, Zonenrand right, which I translate as Zonal Borderland Aid. And this aid program was uh, designed to support the the counties and the local economies through uh, various state uh, subsidies, you know, anything from favorable interest rates on business loans to tax incentives, transportation subsidies, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, zonal borderland aid uh, soon became an integral part of the border region's economic and uh, cultural life. So together with Aid to West Berlin, Uh, zonal borderland aid really became the most enduring regional aid program in West German history. I mean, it's a terribly awkward term, Zonenrandgebiet or Zonenrandförderung. Um, I don't know, you're probably aware that uh, during the 50s and 60s and well beyond, West Germans referred to the GDR as uh, Die Zone, the zone. So that was clearly a mockery of socialist East Germany. And uh, by doing that, by referring to the GDR as the zone, West Germans implied that uh, despite the founding of an independent East German state in 1949, the GDR remained a Soviet puppet regime, right? Not much different from the times when East Germany was the Soviet zone of occupation. So referring to the West German border counties as uh, the zonal borderland uh, served as a reminder to federal officials, that these regions were really a product of partition and that the local economies were in distress through no fault of their own. So this was a a very clever brand name uh, in, in, in many ways.
0: Well, more than just branding, it goes on to become part of federal law. How does the economic discussion around local conditions evolve over the course of the Cold War? And how does it reflect these anxieties and how did those change after 1990?
1: Right. So the borderland advocates really had to develop a certain line of argument in order to pitch their regions. And uh, so they they argued that uh, the economy was suffering in the border counties because of the border, right? So the Iron Curtain became causal for any sort of uh, economic uh, deficiencies, in these, in these regions. And they, um, they basically had to repeat this argument over and over again in order to get this uh, regional aid pro, uh, program entrenched by law. And they uh, succeeded in 1979, uh, I'm sorry, in 1971. They succeeded and a zonal borderland aid law uh, got on the books and that really made this program uh, pretty unassailable. And to have it entrenched by law gave them uh, equivalency to uh, the aid that was slated for uh, West Berlin. So this was a major success for the borderland advocates, and they uh, wanted to keep things that way. Um, But because so many um, uh, tools, uh, financial tools, were available uh, for the borderlands, uh, things not always went uh, smoothly. Uh, There was, of course, also uh, some uh, abuse of these uh, subsidies, There was a very uh, unforeseen uh, real estate boom, for instance, uh, there was much construction uh, in the Harz Mountains or along the Baltic coast with these uh, subsidies. Um, uh, and, and basically, you know, a, an overcapacity for tourism was being uh, built up. And eventually this bubble uh, was bursting and uh, created a bit of a, a bit of a scandal. And um, so criticism for this program was was clearly uh, forming, especially in federal states that did not benefit Uh, from this largesse. So uh, North Rhine-Westphalia or Hamburg are are cases in point. And Hamburg was uh, particularly upset about uh, zonal borderland aid because Hamburg itself was not covered by this program, but a, a few counties on the eastern side of Hamburg did benefit. So these counties suddenly had a financial advantage over hamburg and managed to lure several factories uh, out of uh, hamburg itself and then hamburg as a consequence of course lost corporate taxes here and the and the jobs so there was some tension here between those who received this and those uh, who didn't so uh, in 1989 when the border fell these states, especially Hamburg, were very quick to call for an end of uh, zonal borderland aid. It uh, was gone entirely by 1994, and the uh, the tools of this program, right? Anything from affordable loans or transportation subsidies, infrastructural uh, help. The tools of this program moved kind of thirty miles east into a uh, former, uh, East Germany. So the tools of the zonal borderland aid program became the, became the tools of Aufbau Ost reconstruction East. Um, the, the, that, that was the government program that was meant to, um, uh, reform the East German economy. Uh, since there was such proximity between the former Western border counties and uh, the former Eastern uh, border counties, there were, um, a few efforts of Western companies to uh, continue to collect the subsidies by simply, you know, moving from, moving a few miles uh, over to the east, etc. So this led to a very um, uneven integration of these of these borderlands.
0: From economy and social policy, you turn to tourism, which I have to say, far and away, my favorite part of the book. <laughs> but I digress. How did Germans use borderland tourism to mediate their understanding of the Cold War as it's unfolding? And how did the narratives that emerge from this engagement with the borderlands change over time?
1: Yeah. So really, there is this curious activity of sightseeing at the Iron Curtain, right? Um, so already in the early 50s, the inter-German border attracted curiosity seekers and eventually turned into a well-developed tourist attraction. So there was an elaborate tourist infrastructure that emerged on the western side of the inter-German border that allowed visitors to peek into East Germany from you know, from lookout towers or to travel on the Elbe River on pleasure boats. They could start Stop by at information centers, or they could buy colorful postcards that depicted the border fortifications. Um, so I, and I, I thought that was a very odd uh, activity. Uh, but uh, as I said in the opening, I myself uh, participated in it when I was in high school. So I really, I really tried to revisit this. Um, and I read, this, I read this sightseeing at the Iron Curtain as a way that West Germans and their visitors uh, sought to make sense of the global Cold War through local activity. The Iron Curtain is, of course, an odd uh, spot for, for, for tourism. It's a, it's a site of danger and death. Uh, it's a site of national tragedy. It's the Cold War frontline. And a local uh, hotel owner uh, called the phenomenon creepy tourism. Uh, so he thought it was uh, creepy that busloads of people uh, would 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 come and do this. So I thought that was a was a great term. Um, border tourism could in fact be quite dangerous. Uh, border visitors frequently stepped into risky situations uh, through ignorance, carelessness, or you know bravado. Uh, they they you know would throw items over the fence or shout insults at border guards or they stepped across the demarcation line and games of daring, you know, stuff like that. But sometimes people simply didn't know where the demarcation line actually was. Uh, um, here, it was uh, here it really matters that this border was called the Iron Curtain, so people had a certain mental image. They, they expected a solid fence, and they assumed that the border line was where the fence stood, and that was often uh, tragically wrong. I mean, over time, East German border authorities had moved the entire border infrastructure of the Iron Curtain further inland, so the first fence was some 50 or 100 meters beyond the actual demarcation line. So if visitors stepped up uh, to the fence for you know whatever obligatory photo or whatnot, they were already well on GDR state territory, and East German guards treated that as a violation of uh, East Germany's sovereignty. So they they you know they might shoot at visitors or they arrested them. So a Sunday a harmless Sunday outing uh, could could end rather badly uh, for some border visitors. However, this this very danger may well have uh, constituted the kick um, of a border visit. And needless to say that uh, that border tourism was uh, a major provocation for East German authorities. Um, The uh, the fortifications of the border, uh, how the border looked, I mean, all of this was really forbidden knowledge for ordinary East Germans. Uh, The East Germans were not allowed uh, to approach the border, so border tourism really could only happen from the Western side. And from the Western side, uh, this forbidden knowledge was deliberately put on display right so the Western visitors could easily see uh, what the sed regime always uh, sought to deny, namely uh, that the border had been fortified to lock people in and not to keep alleged fascists or imperialists out. so, so border tourism was really uh, a major image problem for the GDRD le- leadership. I mean not only when a violent incident happened but really almost on a daily basis. And um, and they reacted to that in, in uh, various ways. I mean, in the 1950s and 60s, the Eastern border authorities uh, experimented with various approaches on, <clears throat> on how to handle the issue. They, they, they tried to make sure that villages and farms that were visible from the West would look uh, spiffy and prosperous. Um, at times, they actually tried to propagandize Western visitors with billboards and loudspeakers. So they would, um, they would uh, blare messages of socialism's successes. Uh, but as time went on, especially in later decades, um, the strategy became to, to pacify the border area and try to make sure that there's really nothing to see or to experience. So border visits, uh, uh, the intention was that border visits uh, would become boring for Western tourists.
0: Well, the second half of the book deals with the environmental history the borderlands and complicate some very well-established narratives about this particular area, you begin by dealing with the issue of transboundary air and water pollution. How did ecological concerns develop and shape the relationship between East and West?
1: yeah. um I, I think this chapter on pollution between East and West Germany is perhaps even my my favorite one. I, I learned so much from from writing it. Transboundary pollution is, of course, a staple topic in both environmental history and in borderland studies. But this chapter really, as you say, um, allowed me to develop a new perspective on inter-German relations. Uh, the relations between both sides were always tense, of course, and even after Ostpolitik, like the German version of detente, uh, they remained yeah, tense. <laughs> so uh, both sides... Uh, fought and quibbled about every possible issue from transit routes to West Berlin to protocol issues at international conferences, like, you know, which German representative gets to sit where and speak first, you know, all that stuff. So in these complex relations, environmental diplomacy uh, has so far been overlooked. And in my book, I I point out that the inter-German border was really the interface through which uh, West and East Germany encountered uh, each other's pollution. And this encounter became highly uh, asymmetrical uh, over time. I mean, during the 1980s, um, the GDR's infrastructure uh, was in full decline, and its decaying industry was uh, literally uh, bleeding pollution. And those affected by uh, by this pollution were, of course, first and foremost, uh, the East Germans'. Uh, But a good amount of it also uh, ended up on the West German side because, curiously, uh, most border-crossing rivers uh, run from east uh, to west. So West German authorities, therefore, monitored East German pollution and they made futile attempts to pressure the GDR to do something about it. Um, And and the issues were really serious. I mean, the the mighty Elbe River that flows from Dresden uh, towards Hamburg was uh, polluted uh, its contamination was literally off the charts i mean after unification in 1990 a new classification category had to be invented to describe its uh, pollution level and i argue in this chapter that uh, when when the west germans monitored east german pollution they were practically looking at the evidence of the gdr's dissolution But they failed to decode the message, right? They didn't understand that the significant rise in pollution in the 1980s indicated that the GDR was already in full decline. And instead, they uh, continued to negotiate with the GDR as if the East Germans uh, still had any leverage about their own pollution levels and could have done something about it. I mean, those negotiations uh, didn't come to anything at the time, uh, uh, partly because the GDR was no longer in a position uh, to affect um, you know, the decline of its infrastructure. But I also argue that these negotiations nonetheless uh, mattered. Uh, These negotiations generated the knowledge about the causes of East German environmental problems. Much of ecological restoration after 1990 was achieved by simply switching off the polluting industries, right? So factories were closed, mines were shut down. But I still credit the environmental diplomacy of the 1980s with producing a clear understanding of the challenges and occasionally uh, also uh, with generating accurate templates uh, to fix these problems. So um, it was very important to me to to draw this whole subject uh, beyond the year 1990 when, when both countries were unified And in fact, I found it very illuminating to draw the subject matter of all my chapters well into the post-unification years and at times, you know, right into the present, as I did here with this uh, transboundary pollution chapter.
0: Could you just briefly talk us through one of your case studies of this kind of cross-border interaction between the governments?
1: Yes. Um. One of my case studies is the Vera River. Um. The Vera River um meanders across the border between Thuringia and um uh, and uh, Hesse. Um. And uh, this river suffered from brines that uh, came from potash mining. And uh, so, uh, and and potash mining in this region had been practiced since around 1900, so this was not uh, a new industry in any way. And, uh, And already in the early 20th century, uh, the potash mining had created conflicts between the stakeholders of the river, uh, you know, farmers, uh, people who draw their drinking water from the river, and the and the potash industry that was uh, polluting it. During the Second World War, the pollution of the river already increased significantly because, for the sake of the war economy, uh, the production of potash had to be cranked up. So already at that time, the pollution of the river was, uh, you know, standing at about two thousand five hundred milligram uh, of salt uh, per, per liter of, of water. And uh, that's just a figure for now. But uh, basically, uh, you yourself do not want to drink this water if it's beyond 250 milligrams, right? So we are, uh, we are already at a point where the water is no longer uh, useful as drinking water, uh, neither for humans uh, nor for animals. During the Cold War, when Germany was divided, uh, the East Germans, of course, continued to exploit these potash mines, and uh, because uh, and they basically uh, decided to um, to get rid of uh, of the brines by continuing to dump them into into the Vera River. So they were, in a way, free riding uh, on on West Germany in that regard. And uh, from from the East German side, they argued um, that this shouldn't matter all that much because the river would just eventually discharge uh, the water to the North Sea. Uh, So it's basically just a canal. Um, But uh, the West Germans, of course... um, had the damage uh, from it because these uh, aggressive brines, I mean, not only was the water no longer potable and not even useful for industrial use, but the aggressive uh, salty brines were also damaging infrastructure along the river, you know, from boats to um, turbines to uh, bridges, etc., right? Uh, So they tried to uh, negotiate with GDR to uh, decrease uh, the the in, the input of the brines uh and uh, that uh, didn't get anywhere because um, as i mentioned uh the gdR was just not in a position uh to make investments on the scale that would have been uh, needed to uh, to uh, decrease uh, the input of the uh, of the pollutants so the uh the negotiations were uh, very um frustrating for the West German side, uh, because the, the East Germans basically said, well, if you uh, want us to decrease pollution, then why don't you deliver the technology that would allow us to do it? And uh, But that was a, a no-go uh, for the West Germans for a long time, because they perceived this as, as blackmailing. So the issue... Um, didn't come to, to much of a solution although over time the west germans eventually conceded uh, more and more uh, because they thought uh, if they if they don't do anything uh, then the situation will just uh, be the same so they their their own position softened over time and they became more and more willing uh, to provide the environmental uh, technology to allow the east germans to produce in a less polluting way and um uh, and when the wall fell uh, in 1989 the, uh, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the mines on the East German side were, were just shut down. So that took, uh, certainly took care of uh, a lot of the pollution. But, I mean, the East Germans had never been the only uh, polluters here. On the West German side, on the river, there were also Potash mines. Uh, and uh, the, uh, some of the East German mines were bought up by the Western company that ran the West German uh, potash mines. And um, so after 1990, potash mining did continue in this region and the pollution of the river does continue. And uh, we do have uh, a major abatement. Uh, uh, you know. So there are less, less uh, pollutants now in the river. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the river is still not in an ecologically good uh, state. And the argument I make here is that only because uh, the pollution is less after 1990 does not yet mean that uh, the river is in a good ecological state. So, in a way, the river itself—that is the measure for uh, how strong, uh, how uh, you know, how complicated this this pollution really is—and uh, that allows you ultimately uh, to make an argument about about capitalism versus uh, socialism. So the idea that socialism has such a negative environment, uh, environmental record uh, is surely correct. Uh, but the story after 1990 does not suggest uh, that the capitalist economy is in a better position to bring this river back to life.
0: Well, I mean, the hard numbers there are extremely telling. Like, it's four, Was it like 40,000 back down to 2,500, but still like 10 times higher than potable water?
1: That's right. That's
0: right. Along this line of argumentation, you also take aim at the narrative of the Iron Curtain as a conservation success story. Yes. Just to begin with, though, because some of our listeners won't be familiar, what is the narrative that you are uh, in conversation with and what do you mean by transboundary nature?
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. So I have a, a chapter that is called Transboundary Natures, and in this chapter, um, I analyze the ecological footprint of the Iron Curtain and the consequences of the border regime for landscape, wildlife, and humans. And uh, as you say, some listeners uh, might have heard about uh, the ecological impact of the inter-German border uh, through a post-unification project that is called the Green Belt. Right. So when the border opened in late 1989, nature conservation groups uh, rushed to preserve the ecologically valuable biotopes that the border had sheltered for many years. So this swath of land was, was rich in biodiversity because as long as the border occupied it, it was practically taken out of circulation for any other land use, right? So no farming, no fertilizer, hardly any foot traffic, only extensive maintenance like mowing, et cetera. And the, the Greenbelt uh, Conservation Project uh, seeks to protect this green strip Uh, Because during the time the border stood there, this area allowed sensitive plant and animal species uh, to to thrive, right? Elsewhere in West Germany, such species were often displaced by industrialized agriculture, fertilizer use, urban development, that sort of thing. So, and and I think that the Greenbelt is a very impressive uh, project, but when I started to engage with this Greenbelt project as a historian, um, I soon felt that its marketing story sounded just a tad uh, too nice. Uh, the, the conventional Greenbelt narrative explains the biodiversity in the former border strip by uh, referring to a 40-year respite for nature, right? A 40-year breathing space for nature. And and I felt that this was uh, too much of a redemptive narrative, right? It was kind of a from barbed wire to biodiversity kind of narrative. Uh, but but if you look at the development of the actual uh, border infrastructure, you can see that before any respite uh, settled over the Iron Curtain, uh, the expansion of border fortifications uh, degraded the landscape, right? In the name of border security, Eastern border troops denuded forests. They kept weeds short. And contemporaries uh, described the border as a scar in the landscape. So that was surely not, not a compliment. So, so I wanted to know how the escalating infrastructure of the Iron Curtain affected wildlife and landscape. Uh, I mean, the Iron Curtain was, after all, a military installation with a political function. So I, I wanted to point out that the objectives of this border dictated how the land was managed. So I wanted to tell the story forward, if you will, and explore how the Iron Curtain changed the landscapes, And these changes differ, of course, depending on whether you look at a wetland or at a forest. And the hardware of the Iron Curtain had different consequences for birds than it had for for mammals. So I think that, I hope that this chapter historicizes the Greenbelt Conservation Project uh, by addressing these many unintended ecological consequences of the border regime.
0: If the bucolic ideal narrative is naive, what is as you would argue, the correct historicization of this process?
1: Well, I wouldn't call it naive, let's face it, it's a marketing narrative, right? So it has a function, it is, uh, it has the function to aggregate uh, complex issues for uh, people who are not, you know, necessarily into uh, ecological processes. So I can see why they would pitch their project that way, in order to produce buy in, uh, for what I also consider to be an important Conservation project, but I think as a historian, I simply have uh, different questions. the The Greenbelt success story is often uh, told from nineteen eighty nine forward, and uh, and I wanted to know how exactly this border uh, changed the landscape, right? Like how, what, what exactly was it about this border uh, that that it had this effect on landscape? And uh, the fact that it was so highly fortified was, in my view, only uh, one, one part of the story. And uh, as I mentioned, once you, you have to look at different um, uh, biotopes uh, to discern different uh, consequences. So the, the story is, in my view, much more nuanced uh, that, uh, than, than many accounts of the green belt um, have led on so far.
0: This is what's so interesting about this idea of a transboundary nature to me, because it's, it's it flies in the face of this idea, as you say, of like the respite for nature by highlighting that this is still a, a human landscape at some level, even though it's a landscape that's being cultivated. Like you say, the tradition of knowing nature through work.
1: Yes, yes, that line, is, uh, that line is from Richard White, of course, from his famous book about the Columbia River. So, transboundary natures, um, I, I developed this concept, and what I mean with it is the landscapes uh, that the border created. So the border here clearly uh, has agency in how it uh, affects landscape. And uh, I wanted to look at not, you know, I didn't want to repeat the line that a a border runs through a landscape, but I wanted to know what does this border mean for landscape. So, uh, for instance, I, I looked at one particular wetland uh, the Drömling, uh, which is east of Wolfsburg, this is an area that got uh, divided by the inter-German border, and uh, this wetland uh, had had been turned into arable land for agriculture. Uh, that was a very um, complicated uh, uh, hydrological uh, proposition. So this uh, this uh, this land had to be drained uh, in order to make fields arable, and uh, so there were many, you know, ditches and draining canals, etc. And um, uh, farmers would form cooperatives to uh, keep all of this um, functioning to keep this keep up this infrastructure. And when the inter-German border came in, these cooperatives too were basically divided and the upkeep uh, was abandoned. Uh, so all of these canals uh, silted and no longer uh, functioned the way they were used to. and uh, so the water basically now reverted to its natural, Courses. And uh, so the net result was that fields on the western side were flooding again and eventually um, uh, became useless uh, for agriculture. So this went on for several years until uh, local politicians and farmers uh, decided that these fields would be abandoned, uh, no longer farmed. And basically, uh, the wetland was allowed to return into its more natural state. And uh, this, this, I thought, was a fascinating process where you could really show that the border itself and uh, the upkeep of the border undercut other activities which uh, which then had ecological outcomes.
0: You conclude with the far-reaching implications of the Gorleben nuclear waste site. To begin, what were the core issues around this? How did it become such a lightning rod for anti-nuclear protests? Yeah,
1: so this last chapter um, analyzes the so-called Gorleben controversy um, in 1977 uh, the West German government announced plans to build a nuclear reprocessing and waste storage facility in a very tiny village in Gorleben uh, which is located right on the Elbe River, uh, so Gorleben was really just about two miles away uh, from the border and this nuclear plant would have been would have become West Germany's most costly industrial project to date. Uh, It was was planned on the assumption that nuclear energy would allow Germany to move beyond fossil fuels and to to gain proximate energy independence. So it was in Gorleben that the West Germans hoped to close the nuclear fuel cycle. I mean, that term was a fashionable expression at the time. Uh, Many countries uh, produced nuclear energy and, and kind of had the front end of nuclear production figured out. But no one had a solution uh, for the back end, uh, namely reprocessing of uh, used nuclear fuel and the safe uh, forever storage of the radioactive waste products. And frankly, I mean, it's almost 2020 and still no one has a terminal waste storage uh, facility, uh, but that's a Different conversation. But anyway, um, a project of this magnitude was dropped into the borderlands in 1977 uh, by by nominating Gorleben as the site for the nuclear facility government officials uh, really turned a borderland location into the linchpin of West Germany's uh, future energy supply, I mean, at least as it was conceived in the mid-1970s. So this uh, this uh, chapter really uh, allows me to show one more time um, how the proximity of the border uh, magnified any issues and developments that unfolded in its uh, vicinity, right? So I argue that the presence of the border shaped and magnified every aspect of the Gorleben siding controversy.
0: So. What was that controversy? There's this perfect storm of governments, activists, lobbyists, industry, diplomacy, foreign influence, all coming together in, or well, uh, inter-German influence. I'm not sure what the right way to characterize it. But uh, all of these threads coming together in this issue, what happened?
1: Well, I mean, uh, because of this borderland location, if you are building a major nuclear facility right under the nose of your neighbor, I mean, inevitably this would draw. This did draw the GDR into the debate about Golem, uh, but Golem already was uh, a raging political controversy in the Federal Republic because uh, this project was announced in 1977 at a time when anti-nuclear protest was already uh, running high. So, uh, so to to have the GDR in the mix was really a bad scenario for the government of, of Chancellor Helmut Schmidt. Um, they were already conducting environmental diplomacy with, with the GDR on other issues, for instance, uh, the river Vera River, and uh, that obviously wasn't much fun. Uh, so in view of the of the known inclinations of the uh, SED regime to use West German problems and predicaments as leverage for material compensation, the federal government uh, dreaded lengthy negotiations with the GDR about this nuclear uh, facility, because this would endow East Berlin uh, with influence over a sensitive policy initiative. But, I mean, to this day, uh, there's really the persistent claim uh, by contemporaries and and also in the literature that the GDR did not protest uh, the Gorleben project. And I thought that was really odd uh, because it would have been completely out of character Uh, in view of the customary East German behavior in matters far more minor than a huge nuclear facility on their state border, right? So uh, I'm not going to spell all of this out, but suffice it to say that the GDR did protest uh, the facility, but this protest remained mostly uh, in diplomatic uh, channels. Um, What fascinated me was that the SED leadership was surprisingly well informed about every aspect of the Goerleben project, um, they relied on Stasi information, and they re- really did not wait until the Bonn government um, uh, would share any information with them. So I found um, I found almost uh, verbatim parallels between protocols from the West German nuclear cabinet meetings and in uh, Stasi reports. So they were uh, really exquisitely well informed. And uh, so the the SED leadership objected in particular to um, the reprocessing plant. Uh, because um, uh, the location of bohr and the climatic uh, conditions were likely to settle the East Germans with uh, the risks of this uh, uh, proposed uh, nuclear facility. So if there ever had been an accident, uh, the fallout would have drifted uh, uh, over uh, East German territory. So needless to say that they were uh, concerned about that. So that is is one aspect uh, of the perfect storm. And... um, uh, what's what's also interesting in terms of the um, uh, borderland subsidy story that I had uh, mapped out in the in the first chapters, this coal siding decision really um, almost consummated decades of lobby work. By borderland advocates. Um, and it, so there were these um, uh, discursive patterns that had been conceived in the 1950s that, that framed the border regions as areas in need of state aid, in need of industrial development and jobs. So, in a way, the borderland location of Gorleben uh, almost predetermined its nomination. And um, there's this long standing debate in German politics whether uh, Gorleben was. Uh, Selected for geological reasons, right? It had a suitable salt dome, or whether it was selected for structural reasons because the region uh, needed jobs. And since my earlier chapters established that the borderlands had been constructed as a spatial unit based on economic concerns and regional interest politics, there is, in my view, really uh, no other possible answer. Uh, Goerleben was picked for structural reasons. After three decades of lobbying, borderland advocates had really contributed significantly to the perception that their regions would gladly accept any industrial development, including risk industries, and the elected officials of the county um, where Gordheim is located were open to the idea to transform their county into a nuclear uh, community, right? So the nuclear risk they agreed to house uh, was made to be more bearable by affluence, right, by by material incentives. So local leaders uh, hoped to finally catch up with the prosperity that they perceived in the rest of the republic. So this entire episode Um, remains uh, surprisingly close to the borderland rhetoric of the 1950s. Gorlin really um, continued the anti-nuclear activism uh, that was already... um going on in the Federal Republic at that time. And, um, and I argue that uh, the, the border uh, influenced the very way that the anti-Gorlin uh, protest movement uh, unfolded and, and was composed. So um, you have to see that this was a... Gualim was located in a very rural area. Um, and uh, uh, in the early 1970s, uh, 70s, people from you know Hamburg, West Berlin, Göttingen uh, moved to this county uh, because it was so secluded, uh, because uh, because modern you know modernization had passed it by, uh, Golem uh, the, the the Ventland area where Golem was located uh, was perceived as you know to have retained a certain rural authenticity, uh, etc. So so um, people settled there who tried to use the area to practice you know what we could call alternative lifestyles so the seclusion that the border created had drawn them there uh, in the first place and now that they were there suddenly there is are these uh, plans to nuclearize uh, this this particular um uh, this particular county and uh, what the what the protesters did is that they continued the tradition of really uh, spectacular grassroots activism uh, and spectacular activities. Uh, so, for instance, um, there was the famous Gorleben track, where uh, farmers would drive their uh, tractor trailers uh, all the way to Hanover, to the, the state capital of Lower Saxony, to protest uh, the Gorleben plants. There was also um, the uh, occupation of the construction site and the um, the founding of the Free Republic Ventland, right? I mean, they basically uh, staged a departure from the what they perceive to be the atomic state. But most interesting is really how they involved uh, the border itself uh, in their protest. Um, uh, the border provided rather spectacular protest opportunities. That would allow them to uh, generate media attention. So on two occasions, uh, protesters actually crossed the demarcation line onto GDR territory to stage uh, a demonstration. They, they squatted on GDR territory and that put them out of reach of Western authorities. And surely uh, this was also against the rules of the Eastern border authorities. And um, so they they practically invented uh, a new protest form that was only possible in uh, divided Germany, right? You occupy the border strip, you're flirting uh, with a Cold War incident. Um, And this uh, protest form was uh, subsequently adapted for a number of other environmental uh, causes. Uh, The the border fortifications would serve as a backdrop for protest activities that wanted to underscore the point that that pollution or uh, nuclear radiation simply knew no boundaries. So uh, what better place to do that than the uh, allegedly solid Iron Curtain?
0: Projects like this always end up opening innumerable rabbit holes that you can fall down and sometimes you have to just move on from them. In writing it though, in writing this book, were there any questions that are still niggling at you that you think you're going to deal with in the future or that you feel deserve further investigation by others in the field?
1: I think the the Green Belt Project uh, is quite likely to attract further attention. This is a project of such a magnitude. This is this you know a major the the kind of the flagship project of uh, German uh, nature conservation at this time? So I think there will be future readings uh, of the meaning of this this con- conservation project. And um, and I also think we are not done with the conversation about. Um, the environmental record of uh, state socialism as compared to the environmental record of the capitalist economies. So I think uh, that conversation is being very cautiously reopened right now um, by scholars of Eastern Europe. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing that uh, develop further. And um, well, I do regret that I never uh, wrote a chapter on the borderlands as military spaces, um of course uh, this was also the military front line of the cold war and the military strategies of both nato and warsaw pact uh centered uh, on this particular area so i had intended to have a chapter about this but the project was was really uh, growing too large and so i eventually uh, that ended up on the chopping block so um i wouldn't mind if somebody would pick that up
0: Well, the best books always seem to raise more questions than they answer. So we look forward to your future work. But uh, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. We've been speaking with Astrid Eckert about her new book, West Germany and the Iron Curtain, Environment, Economy and Culture in the Borderlands. Astrid's book is the first environmental history of the German borderlands with a fascinating perspective on how the Iron Curtain shaped economics and culture in the Federal Republic. For those of you interested in a history of the internal border that examines these broader knock-on effects of a militarized frontier, you can get your copy of West Germany and the Iron Curtain from Oxford University Press as of 2019. Astrid Eckert is required reading to nuance many of the traditional narratives of post-war German historiography and as fascinating on the page as she is in conversation with that. I'd like to thank you for joining us today and hope to see you next time.